0: Hey everyone, Eric here. Before we get to our interview today with Professor Robert Wyrod, I'd like to encourage you to get an all access subscription to the China Africa Project. Now, this will give you unlimited access to our exclusive reports, the China Africa Experts Network, and the China Africa Brief, our daily email newsletter. All of this includes insights and information that you just can't find anywhere else. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe, use the promo code podcast at checkout, and we'll throw in an extra month free of charge. That's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa Podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at VIT University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Cobus, we constantly read about the huge amounts of money flowing from China into Africa. All the FOCAC money, $60 billion. We lo- talk about investment money, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. Yet that number feels very abstract at the end of the day because we almost never, and at least you and I, maybe other people do, but we don't talk at all about the impact that that money has on the ground in African communities. Uh, Obviously, people say, well, investment is good, aid is good, development is good, but it doesn't really look at how it impacts and changes people's lives in particular communities. How is the Chinese money changing things for the better, or is it in some cases actually... Exacerbating existing strains and tensions that happen in society. So it's something that we're going to look at today, and we're going to go to a very particular part of Uganda to talk about it, because I think it's very interesting, and we're going to hear some contrarian views tonight on development. And that, to me, is what's going to be very, very interesting, is to hear a different side of the China-Africa story, particularly as it relates to development.
1: Yes, I mean, you know, w- w- when, one, when one is in the African development space, so frequently, these things turn into complete abstractions. You know, that people people talk about the need for job creation, for example, and then they throw out how many hundreds or thousands of jobs were created by a particular project. But we very seldom get a glimpse into what those jobs are actually like when you do them day to day. And we also don't, don't get a, a you know a real glimpse into the different ways of thinking about development that then shape these development projects. You know, like there's, there's whole discourses of development about what development is and what it isn't, how it sh- what it should look like and what it shouldn't look like. And those ideas then shape what kinds of projects get, get implemented. And very different ideas mean very different projects on the ground.
0: Kobus, it's very interesting that you point that out because the paradigm of aid and development in many senses has been shaped by the traditional donors, the legacy donors in the United States, Europe, and Japan. And China often doesn't fit into that. And that's going to be the area that we're going to focus today is comparing what the Chinese are doing and this idea of developmental pragmatism. And that came up in a paper uh, by R- Professor Robert Wyrod, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Women and Gender Studies and the International Affairs Program at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He's also a sociologist interested in gender, sexuality, and social change in the developing world, and the author of In the General's Valley. China, Africa, and the Limits of Developmental Pragmatism, a paper that came out a couple months ago. Robert, thank you so much for getting up early for us. We really appreciate it.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you both for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Well, we really enjoyed your paper, and in part because you took a very contrarian view on a number of different issues, which we're going to delve into uh, later in our discussion. But first, I'd like to talk about how you did your research in setting up the village of Kapika. Kapika which is in Uganda's General Valley and it's about 40 miles or about 60 kilometers from Kampala and it's a place where a chinese funded the chinese funded Ugandan Liaoshen industrial park is being built and you went there and if this thing is by Ugandan standards it's got to be enormous because with a budget of 600 million dollars uh, that's a lot of money there why don't you tell us a little bit about Kapika and the research that you did that went into this paper, so we can get a little bit of a better understanding of the context for which you're studying the Chinese and, and their development programs.
2: Sure. So Capeka is, as you said, it's a classic southern Ugandan village, just about an hour and a half or two hours drive from the massive burgeoning capital city of Kampala. And it takes about, oh, an hour to get out of Kampala. And then you have Another hour's drive through this beautiful southern Ugandan bucolic green rolling hills. And you are traveling on um, on a relatively new paved road that was actually paved um, by a Chinese state-owned company. And when you reach the end of the paved road, you get to the center of Kapeka. And like most Ugandan, southern Ugandan villages, it has a tiny little downtown almost where there's uh, two streets that cross and there's little shop fronts and it almost looks like a microscopic town. And then out for, you know, many miles surrounding that town are small family farms um, that kind of stretch through this beautiful rolling countryside and into the, just the Northwest of the downtown circle um, you enter a particularly beautiful valley um, that is kind of framed by these, oh, I don't know, thousand-foot peaks. It's lush and green, and that's uh, the valley where this industrial park has being, uh, is being built. And um, I first visited Kapeka in 2015, and um, at that point, this project, the Uganda-Liao Industrial Park, was just beginning. Um, And there were a small uh, maize mill, there was uh, a small brick factory. And just about every year or so, I've been visiting there and I've watched the village, uh, sorry, that valley slowly transform into what now starts to look like an actual industrial park. Um, There are currently three large factories that are operating employing hundreds of men and women. One is, I would say, the size of three American football fields, uh, maybe four, and the other two are about the size of one American football field or a soccer pitch. Um, And um, so the vision of this industrial park, certainly in the last two years, is really starting to, to gain steam. And so it's been really quite fascinating. Um, I actually visited this village long before um, this industrial park was even planned. Um, my very first project in Uganda, which is what culminated in my first book, was an ethnographic study of a, a poor community in Kampala. And I was doing years of ethnographic research to kind of understand the impact of the AIDS epidemic. And one of my closest uh, informants, who later became a research uh, assistant, who was a resident and born and raised in this, what Ugandans call a slum, turns out his mother was born in Capeka. And when I was looking for a second project, I was like, ah, oh, have you heard anything about some Chinese projects? And he said, well, why don't we go back to um, my mother's village? We had been there several times before because we've heard that there's the beginning of this project. So um, I've actually seen this village transform transform from a classic kind of small Ugandan village into what now is a, a rural industrial park in the making.
1: And you mentioned uh, in your article that there are, you know, there are significant Chinese uh, interests involved in in setting up these factories and then also significant uh, interests from the ruling elite in Uganda. Could you like lay out the the kind of cast of characters or who who controls this this value?
2: Yes. So it is a, um, a particularly interesting site and more interesting than perhaps I ever imagined when my uh, friend first said we should go to his mother's village. So um, unlike other large Chinese uh, partnerships with African governments, um, this is not a partnership between the central government of China and the Ugandan government, but a partnership between a provincial government Uh the Liaoning uh, province government in China and the government of Uganda. And then there are two large uh, Chinese-based or Chinese uh, private investment groups that are involved. Um, And so it's a very interesting case study of the role that a kind of coalition between an African government, a Chinese provincial government, And then Chinese private investors are playing in a particular development project. And as you alluded to, there's a particularly interesting kind of twist with the Chinese, uh, the Ugandan government. So um, the land that uh, that the industrial park is being built on is actually owned and controlled by the brother of the current president. So the president is Yoweri Museveni, he's been in power since the mid-80s. And his brother, um, his name is General Salim Saleh. He's a very high-ranking military official and arguably one of the, you know, top three most powerful people in the country. Um, The land in Kopeika is actually formally kind of, he owns the titles to the land. And so he has been instrumental in kind of creating this partnership with Chinese investors, he leases the land to the, uh, to the Chinese businesses. And so there's a way in which um, not only is the government of Uganda involved, but the first family is deeply involved with this project. Um, and I do research at a couple other sites as well. And um, this isn't an anomaly at one of my other sites. It seems like the first family can have a very strong role in, in kind of being involved in these projects in uh, Chinese-Ugandan partnerships.
1: And you mentioned uh, in your article that there are, you know, there are significant Chinese uh, interests involved in, in setting up these factories and then also significant uh, interests from the ruling elite in Uganda. Could you like lay out the, the kind of cast of characters uh, or who, who controls this, this valley? Yes.
2: Yeah, so it is a, um a particularly interesting site and more interesting than perhaps i ever imagined when my uh, friend first said we should go to his mother's village so um unlike other large chinese uh, partnerships with african governments um, this is not a partnership between the central government of china and the ugandan government But a partnership between a provincial government, uh, the Liaoning uh, province government in China, and the government of Uganda. And then there are two large uh, Chinese-based or Chinese uh, private investment groups that are involved. Um, And so it's a very interesting case study of the role that a kind of coalition between an African government Chinese provincial government, and then Chinese province, private investors are playing in a particular development project. And as you alluded to, there's a particularly interesting kind of twist with the Chinese, uh, the Ugandan government. So um, the land that the uh, that the industrial park is being built on is actually owned and controlled by the brother of the current president. So the president is Yoweri Museveni. He's been in power since the mid-80s. And his brother, um, his name is General Salim Saleh. He's a very high-ranking military official and arguably one of the top three most powerful people in the country. Um, The land in Capeka is actually formally kind of, he owns the titles to the land. And so he has been instrumental in kind of creating this partnership with Chinese investors. He leases the land to the, uh, to the Chinese businesses. And so there's a way in which um, not only is the government of Uganda involved, but the first family is deeply involved with this project. Um, and I do research at a couple other sites as well. And um, this isn't an anomaly at one of my other sites. It seems like the first family can have a very strong role in in kind of being involved in these projects and Chinese-Ugandan partnerships.
0: It's interesting because your research project seems to encompass so many of the themes of the China-Africa relationship that go unspoken. The fact that we often talk about the Chinese and most people, when they think the Chinese, they think of the central government, Xi Jinping, Beijing, And in fact, uh, the fact that Liaoning province is the one that's doing this is indicative of the real growth in provincial engagement. Uh, The the governor of Zhejiang province, for example, was just doing a tour tour of Africa. But the interesting part is that they do still, regardless of whether it's the central or the provincial government, tend to prefer to engage with elites, as in the case of Museveni's brother. I thought that was absolutely uh, fascinating. Now, let's dive into the research. And this is where you start to... You start to take some pretty strong opinions, which I'm I'm also going to be interested to hear what the reaction was to some of these opinions. Uh, Let me quote you something that you wrote. You said your fieldwork in the General's Valley revealed that the China-Uganda project to date have been enmeshed in a wide range of social inequities uh, or inequalities. Sorry. At times, these projects have explicitly exploited existing social tensions, especially along lines of ethnicity, while buttressing political power imbalances. They have also created new inequities, in particular class distinctions and dramatically amplified racial tensions. Walk us through, that's a lot, unpack, walk us through some of that about how the Chinese are coming in with investment and exacerbating tensions on the ground within Uganda's society.
2: Sure. Happy to do that. And um, I guess this is partly my orientation as a sociologist, especially a sociologist who does more ethnographic research. I guess sociologists tend to always be very attentive to um, issues of power and how they play out. Um, in everyday life and the assumption that there's always going to be social inequalities. And so any project, whether it's a Western development project or a Chinese development project, is kind of entering a space where there's already power imbalances. And so to me, it's a fascinating question to, to think about how a new actor, a relatively new actor Maybe helping to uh, ameliorate some of those power problem, power dynamics or inequalities or maybe exacerbating them in new ways. So actually, it's one of the things I'm most interested in the China-Africa uh, relationship is kind of coming in with the assumption that there's always going to be inequalities. And so what happens? Um, and so I think um, what I should say at the at the at the start is that undeniably, it's been just fascinating and impressive to watch the extent to which these projects have created jobs uh, for Ugandans in this village. Um, A lot of the workers are not actually from the village, which is an interesting twist in um, the kind of the social implications of the project. But it has been kind of amazing to watch how in a span of a few years, a village that was basically the only income was subsistence agriculture. We're hoping to get a little surplus agriculture to sell, maybe shopkeepers um, has created a whole cadre of factory workers, men and women um, that didn't exist before. Um, So I think the Chinese um, kind of investors deserve credit for that in the Ugandan government. Um, The kind of more pessimistic side of the story is I think really thinking about, um, well, A, what are those jobs like in everyday life? What is it really like to be a worker at the factory that's producing, well, in one case, mango chips or uh, floor tiles? Um, What are the conditions like? How do people feel about that? Um, And I'd say generally what I found is one of the most prominent themes is that Both men and women who are employed at these factories um, feel like the labor conditions are abusive on a lot of different levels. They feel like they're expected to work um, unreasonably long hours for relatively low pay. Um, They feel that they have really uh, unfair penalties if they miss work. Um, There's a lot of demeaning treatment of workers that has often kind of racial overtones. Um, And so the overall sense I got from men and women is that, yes, these are jobs that they wouldn't necessarily have. Otherwise, some of them traveled from hundreds of miles away to take these jobs, but that um, they are jobs that have a very finite kind of life for them. Um, They can't keep in these jobs for too long because they just get too burned out. And, um, And they see these as kind of temporary forms of employment that don't necessarily lead anywhere um, and kind of an overall sense of frustration about um, why these jobs can't be better, why the wages can't be better, why the hours can't be shorter. Um, And so I was surprised. Um, You know, I'm pretty familiar with the Ugandan context. I've been doing research there since 2003. And so, you know, this The extent to which decent paid work is so rare across the country. Um, You know, there really is entrenched poverty, especially in rural areas. I thought people would be um, more content with the work, given that it was relatively steady. And so I was surprised to see um, how frustrated and burned out a lot of the workers were. So to me, that was a, a very interesting part of just the labor dynamics.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting point that, that, that you make. I mean, you, what you also point out is that, that in the process of, of developing this particular valley, it also then exacerbates kind of distinctions between, between southern and northern Ugandans, and then also also uh, Ugandans and Asians. Um, like, how, how do those fault lines manifest?
2: Yeah, so that is a little bit complicated. Let me start by talking about the ethnicity part. So the the village is located in the southern part of Uganda, and for many decades, for a wide variety of reasons, the southern half of Uganda has been relatively more prosperous and has experienced more development than the northern part of Uganda. Um, and when um, the projects first began in Kapika, um uh, there was kind of an, uh, the intention was to try to hire local workers. Um, there were a lot of people who were underemployed, um, but the local folks uh, quickly kind of got frustrated with the labor conditions and began to ask for better wages um, and better treatment. And there was a decision kind of before, um, Before, the industrial park really amped up its development to kind of address these labor conditions, not by increasing wages or um, reducing hours, but instead to try to recruit more marginal, kind of more desperate workers from northern Uganda. And so when I first started doing my research there, the shift had already been made to trying to get workers from northern Uganda who could be migrant workers to come and move to Kapeka and work in the factories. Um, and because the North is more poor, there's kind of an unlimited supply of marginal men and women who are desperate to leave poor Northern Uganda. Um, and so that did create a kind of more docile uh, workforce that kind of probably worked for the, for the managers. Um, but it really, exacerbated these long-standing tensions between Southern Ugandans and Northern Ugandans. So the Southern Ugandans that live in the village find the migrant workers really problematic, that they're coming in, um, that they're easy to exploit, um, and that they've pushed out uh, the Southern Ugandans from any of these jobs, and they've kind of made it impossible to negotiate for better jobs. And um, And with kind of more and more migrant workers, um, as you might expect, there's increasingly kind of issues about the quality of life in this village. There's been an increase in crime, including violent crime against women uh, in the last few years. And I found that, you know, the narrative that's about this crime is that these migrants from the north who are coming in, who um, are not as kind of disciplined are and are desperate that they're kind of increasing crime in the area. So there's a sad way in which, by exploiting these ethnic divisions, uh, the Chinese managers have actually exacerbated or amplified ethnic divisions among Ugandans.
0: Can I just challenge you a little bit on this, just for the sake of argument and the dev- playing devil's advocate here? Let me let me just put a counter argument to you and just to get your response to it, because a lot of what you've described sounds like what is the circumstances in lots of different countries. In fact, in our own country, in the United States, people say the same things about Americans. They don't want to work in factories. So factory managers go to Central Americans, bring them into the communities. Then they complain about crime and they complain that the nature of the community is changing. I mean, it sounds like you're talking about a lot of different communities around the world. Number one... Um, I guess my question about the the working conditions, um, is it possible that because this was a rural community, an agrarian community, this was not a a community that has a history of of industrial work or factory work, that the people are unaccustomed to working in factories. And working in factories are is not a good thing. It's hard. It's difficult. It's dirty, It's dangerous. I mean, I live in Southeast Asia. Where it's the same situation. Young people generally work in factories. You don't have. I mean, it's very odd to see, you know, like you know, American worker, the Netflix documentary, and you see these men in their 60s working in a in a in a, in a, in a glass factory in, in Southeast Asia. No one makes it past 25 to maybe 30 at the end because it is so grinding and so hard. They come for a few years, they make some money, they then leave. And then another group of young people comes in, and it's that cycle. This is what happened in China, too. People came from the interior provinces to Guangdong province, worked in the factories for a few years. It was brutal, tough, the wages were low, and then they they went back to their home village. So is it possible, and again, I'm just wondering, I don't know this community, you know it very well, that maybe their expectations were not in check? And is it the responsibility of the factory owner to accommodate that when he or she is potentially working on quite thin margins for a lot of the products that they're doing. So if this group of people doesn't want to work for them, well, I'm going to go find workers who do. Is that unreasonable as as an owner? Those are two
2: great questions. Yeah. And I think they get us to kind of the next level of of analysis about how we kind of think about the impact of this type of development. Um, So the first one, I agree. Yeah. These ethnic tensions that have a a really kind of nasty edge are absolutely not unique to this environment. It's not unique to the China Africa uh, relationship. It's something as an American, I see played out constantly in us politics. And I think What's problematic about it and so sad about it, right, is that um, these kind of how these precarious labor markets all around the world, right, um, pit workers against each other and see worker and make it so workers see each other as the enemies. And it's such so easy then to turn that kind of worker animosity into a, a very prob- problematic problematic ethnic or racial kind of animosity. Um, Those tensions are always there and are so ripe for being inflamed by demagogues, right? And so um, what I see happening in Kopeika is just a symptom of perhaps broader kind of global capitalist labor practices where workers are seen as kind of in competition, sometimes in a competition for the the lowest possible wages, and instead of kind of mobilizing to uh, to try to um, advocate for better wages, it's much more easy for the tensions and animosities to be directed to the fellow workers, and of course then to be framed by people's prejudices. And so, for me, as somebody who's a longtime observer of Uganda and who has seen how ethnicity has been used. For so long, in these kind of cynical ways, politically and economically, it's sad to see um, it being used yet again or being exacerbated yet again um, by kind of this these new uh, relationships with China. Um, and then, yes, this I think that's a very interesting point about um, to what extent um, you know are the complaints by the workers legitimate? Is there a, is there a sense that maybe they didn't know what they were getting into, that it's it's uh, the rhythms of um, really intense kind of assembly line or factory four floor labor are really different than kind of the rhythms of agrarian labor that's so common in sub-Saharan Africa. Coming to work at very particular times, staying at your post, doing kind of highly repetitive work, right? The classic Assembly line, global factory for labor, um, and so to be honest, I think um, I think there is an element of that getting kind of accustomed to a different type of work. Um, but after my many, many, many interviews with workers now over the course of several years, getting to see the common themes of the extent to the labor demands and. Yeah, I'm really quite sympathetic with the Ugandans' um, kind of critique of the labor practices. Um, working seven, out, seven days a week, often eight to 10 hours a day with little break, and um, um, the sense that any type of complaint, any type of pushback is probably going to lead to your being dismissed. Um, and so, to me, I think at least the practices that I've observed or I haven't observed, but I've heard chronicled maybe over a hundred times now by different workers um, makes it pretty clear to me that there are certainly ways that these labor practices could um, conform to at least uh, more conventional uh, I don't know American standards for uh,
0: no days. no no no. I mean really, I mean, I mean that doesn't happen in the developing world. I mean I'm I mean in in China, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Guatemala, those standards are just not feasible. I mean it just I mean we that's an ideal. That's a dream. And that's what the you know what what we Americans want in our trade agreements when we talk about labor standards, but the reality is is that it's brutal and tough. And there's no factory in the developing world that does an 8-hour day 5 days a week with UAW standards, in in my view, I, I just in my experience,
2: granted, and sadly, and granted, and 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 in fact, of course, that has become increasingly rare in the United States, right, with the decline of labor. But I think the danger, of course, then becomes painting this in, uh, framing this in very kind of binary terms, that it's either an idealized, unattainable, kind of. 1960s uh, eight-hour day with uh, union wages, or it's uh, you know a seventy-hour week with you know uh, the worst possible wages and no labor protections, and I think of course there's a massive spectrum of labor practices in between that, Um, and I think framing it as either or, of course, as we all know, right, is deeply problematic because it it becomes um, a choice between either an ideal that's unattainable or an actual practice which is deeply problematic that could be amended in many ways. Um, and the other thing I just I think is important to raise, right? And I think this gets to the bigger issue of what type of development China is involved with in Africa, um, if the kind of the benchmark for the Chinese projects. Um, in Africa is really um, their economic viability and their ability to make profit. Well then maybe we have a potentially problematic model for new model for African development. If the factories in Capeka can only kind of work economically for the owners and managers if they're kind of predicated on these kind of problematic labor practices then are they a net good, especially for the Ugandans? And I think that's kind of the, the perspective that I keep coming back to. What is, the, what is the impact for the Ugandans themselves? And how do the Ugandans themselves feel about it? And there's just one other tiny twist that relates to the racial dynamics that I think it's good to underscore, that when you're talking about labor and kind of labor practices in Sub-Saharan Africa, There's always this kind of shadow of racist framings of Africans as lazy and unwilling to do hard work. And um, I do think this can easily become part of these dynamics about whether or not Ugandans should push back or be critical of labor practices they see as excessive. Because of the long history of racist kind of colonial framings of Africans as lazy, it becomes quite easy to... To um, dismiss Africans' claims of labor abuses as just laugh Africans' unwillingness or inability to work hard.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's a it's it's a really important point, a very interesting point. Um, you know, I, I guess then it becomes a, a question. Um, you know, you, you make you make the distinction between between idealist. Uh, you know, Western traditional idealist styles of development and, and the Chinese pragmatist approach to development. Um, and, you know, in, on, on the pragmatist side, it then also f- becomes a question to which extent Uganda and or other African countries are willing to or able to, um, you know, compete with places like Southeast Asia, you know, in, in, in the kind of international marketplace of, of cheap labor. Um, and whether that cheap, you know, manufacturing based on cheap labor model, which, which, you know, is, is pushed by many development experts and multilateral institutions around the world, you know, Asian and non-Asian ones, um, whether that makes sense for Africa, and if not, then what else does? Um, you know, like, could, could you get a, a, a sense of how, of, of, to which extent is the, is the, the, this local situation that you, that you encountered, um, in Uganda, to which extent is that, is that expandable or applicable to, say, Ethiopia? You know, which is which is really jumping very enthusiastically into this kind of manufacturing model, also on the back of extremely low wages and very tough working conditions. Um, and how they compare to places like Bangladesh um, or other kind of which which are now frequently kind of held up in African circles anyway as these kind of champions or like like examples of countries that are that are actually attaining development through this model.
2: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And it gets at kind of the complexity of of this issue, even just within Africa. Um, yeah, where we see places like Ethiopia that have um, really benefited a lot from an ever-increasing kind of deeper relationship with China and have had some real success stories, it seems, from what I know. Um, and I guess the point I'd like to make around that is uh you know i think the ugandan case um is interesting because it it has some of the specificities of the ugandan case it has um a very powerful president um who tightly controls kind of economic development in the country um it has its own peculiar histories of inequalities and racial and ethnic tensions and I guess my fear with the Chinese development model, which in my view is so, um, so focused on economic development almost exclusively, um, is that it becomes a, a real one size fit all to African development. Um, the notion that you know if a special economic zone for industrial kind of uh, production worked really well in Ethiopia as a partnership with China, And why don't we just replicate that model everywhere? Um, And I think um, that kind of narrow economic development focus, you know, comes with all of these pitfalls. Right. It allows um, it allows powerful players within countries to take advantage of that and doesn't provide any kind of mechanisms or checks and balances about, well, what if this generic model of economic development isn't it's creating these problems because of perhaps the country's context or the regional context. And I feel like kind of thinking about China-Africa relations in this broader frame of development is important just because, because of that, that it forces us to kind of think about, you know, what are the impacts of these projects, these partnerships beyond narrow economic, uh, develop, uh, economic growth goals Kind of economic or business goals, um, and how we can build in mechanisms to address some problems that might emerge with too narrow of an economic focus. So I don't know if that exactly answered your question, but I think it it raises this broader question of what is China doing uh, in Africa as a development actor. What are the possibilities and what are the problems with the model that's, in my mind, quite distinct from the Western
0: development model? Yeah, it's interesting that you're talking about this idea of, you know, the templating uh, of development. And it brings me back to to the days that I was living in Kinshasa and I would meet with we would go out for drinks with Western aid workers. And these are Western aid workers. You know, they're, you know, white people who, you know, don't speak the language don't really understand the local culture. And I would say, well, how do you guys implement anything? Well, we've got, you know, this worked in Mali, so we're going to bring it here. This, we did this in Haiti, we're going to bring it here. And it's so interesting that I think countries bring with them th- what they know. And it's impossible for them to know all the different details of the different countries and cultures. So in the West, it was this idea of, well, this worked in Mali, so therefore we're going to bring it to, to, to Congo, and, and I think the Chinese, from what you're saying, seem like they're doing the same thing. And we've talked about this on previous shows where the Chinese really believe in their own development history. So they kind of rose up with special economic zones. They rose up without a whole bunch of aid. They got some aid. But it was a lot of resource for, uh, for, for infrastructure financing from the Japanese, as Deborah Braudigam has written extensively about. And they're bringing that to Africa. So it's, bringing, it's, it's what they know as opposed to kind of doing something different. But I guess I just wonder how much of what you're seeing happened in, in Uganda is a consequence of the Chinese development model and how much of it is really a reflection of just the exploitations of global capitalism.
2: That is a great question. Yeah. And it's a kind of ironic question given that we're talking about China China Africa partnerships. You know I mean, um, I mean I
0: guess would it be any different if it was an H&M factory that's there cranking out, you know, fast fashion which of course is highly exploitative. I mean just go to Bangladesh, look at what the Gap, H&M, all these companies are doing. Uh they're yeah, go to Ethiopia. I mean, H&M is in Ethiopia now. Yeah, and they're they're not known for happy, you know, fun workplaces with with lots of rights and benefits and things like that. So I guess I'm just is there How much of this is specific to the Chinese and how much of it is just the cruelty of global capitalism?
2: Yeah, that's a, a great point. And yes, I mean, especially from your vantage point in Southeast Asia, right, we have decades of kind of labor abuses that are often kind of tied to sweatshop labor that was creating apparel for universities in the United States and a long history of trying to push back against that to try to reform global capitalist uh, production practices that were very much emanating from the West. Um, and yeah, and, and I would say that is, um, that is a really interesting analytic for thinking about what is China as a development actor? Is China, is it, is it problematic to even think of them as doing development in Africa? Should we just think of them as a source of transnational capital and that they're just trying to expand their, you know, domestic production base, have it go global and in the process kind of expand that kind of industrial capitalist model to their, uh, to places like sub-Saharan Africa. Um, And I think it's important to realize that a narrow focus on kind of economic development, does have a lot of overlap with the way in which transnational capitalist production has been happening since the 80s globally, right? So there's a way in which what China's doing in terms of um, trying to develop a kind of a business-oriented industrial base in in places like Uganda shares a lot with kind of the, the transnational spread of global capitalism and brings with it these very predictable labor problems of exploiting, exploiting workers and kind of a a race to the bottom. Um, But I think if we only saw China that way, um, I think we're really missing um, a whole different component of the China Africa relationship. And I think um, it's important to think about what China's doing, not just as kind of global capitalist kind of business expansion, but very much framed within this kind of broader kind of rubric of development. Um, certainly the Chinese central government really talks about its partnerships with sub-Saharan African countries as the South-South partnerships that are helping, hopefully, to Afri- Africa to develop in a way that China did. Um, they do provide kind of... Uh, not just capital, right, but loans with sometimes generous terms, forgiving loans on occasion. Um, There really is a way in which what's happening between China and Sub-Saharan African countries is very much explicitly talked about as as development. And to me, as somebody who's concerned about the impacts of of these new relationships, that's important. um, Because I think if we... If we frame this as a debate about how to do development, it brings to the foreground issues other than simply uh, economic growth. It brings to it brings to the foreground issues of you know of of social inclusion more broadly, how people can ordinary people can benefit from these new relationships, Um, and it puts I think more pressure both on African governments, and Chinese players to kind of do more than transnational capitalist growth, to actually do development, to, do, to address social inequalities as part of their efforts to uh, improve economic growth. So, yeah. So, I guess for me, I completely agree. There's much, much overlap um, in the way in which I see China doing their work, their partnerships, um, there's a lot of overlap with transnational capitalism and the problems that emerge. And um, I think part of the challenge is, is trying to get the conversation more explicit about China as a very powerful development partner um, that wants to kind of gain some status and global recognition for helping four countries. And that comes with responsibilities to promote not just economic growth, but I think social inclusion and equality as well.
0: The paper is in the General's Valley, China, Africa, and the limits of developmental pragmatism. It's a very, very provocative piece of writing. Uh, we'll have links to it in the show notes. Uh, we didn't even get to, I, you know, there was a Foucauldian a discourse, and I wanted to talk about Foucault because <laughs> I have not talked about Foucault's for twenty-five years since I was in college. And, but don't be intimidated by the presence of Foucault in the paper, everybody. It is actually a very, very accessible paper. Uh, It's written by Robert Wyrod, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Women and Gender Studies, and uh, also the International Affairs Program at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Are you guys the bison or the buffaloes, right? Where, yep, yep, exactly Oh, that's the mascot of the team And uh, he's a sociologist interested in gender, sexuality And social change in the developing world With an expertise, obviously On what the Chinese are doing in Uganda Robert, thank you so much for joining us We really appreciate it, it was a great discussion
2: Thank you so much, it was so fun To think through all these uh, issues with you And the wonderful, provocative uh, Questions as well, so thank you both so much
0: Kobus, the thing that kept going through my mind when he was talking about the difficulties that some of the people in Uganda were having with factory life is that a lot of African countries had better be careful what they wish for, because this is exactly what people have been trying to do, which is to bring manufacturing from Asia, from China, over to Africa, to places like Rwanda, Uganda, Kenya. They want the manufacturing jobs, but the manufacturing jobs are brutally tough. And I'm just not sure there's going to be an enormous amount of sympathy for African demands on better labor conditions, as ideal as it might be, when in fact here in Southeast Asia and in South Asia, people for decades and to this day are dealing with probably much worse conditions. So, I mean, I'm, again, this sounds horrifically cruel on my point of view, but it's just the nature of what global capitalism is today. And the fact that there is no transparency in a lot of African governments and there's no accountability in African governments for better governance and for better working conditions, I'm not sure that we can really expect to have what he talked about, U.S. standards of manufacturing labor. I just, those conditions. So I don't know. Be careful what you wish for because it's really tough.
1: Yeah, especially considering that the U.S. itself frequently doesn't have those standards anymore, you know. Less and um, less, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a it's, it's really, really complicated question because on the one hand, you know, if you're in an African context, then if, like if, if you speak to government officials, they're like, go, go, go. Like the more job creation, the better. The more manufacturing, the better. That's essentially, you know, th- there's almost this kind of tunnel vision about the need to build manufacturing um, to you know while a lot of development experts actually raise a lot of doubts about whether that manufacturing model is even possible anymore not only for Africa but at all you know kind of because a lot of them point out that a you know the the the, the logic behind it right kind of is that is that as, as Chinese wages are rising um, you know, a lot of these Chinese companies that are that are really dependent on low wage manufacturing will then move elsewhere and move towards towards Africa, and a lot of them have also obviously moved to Southeast Asia. Now, the point, the, the problem is, is that a the Southeast Asian companies are working pretty well. You know, kind of there's there's a lot that the manufacturing that's happening there is happening very fast and, and very effectively, um, and the wages there are rising, but not as not as quickly. But the the larger problem is AI and automization. You know, so a lot of those a lot of those jobs aren't moving to Africa. They're not moving anywhere. They're, they're just simply being replaced by robots, um, and you know, so so you have that problem. On the other hand, you also have uh, the inherent environmental nightmare that is the manufacturing everything in China and ship it everywhere. You know, kind of using low grade, you know, kind of very polluting machine oil for your ships in the process. Um, you know, so so as African development experts are, are pushing this kind of job creation via manufacturing narrative, a lot of of development experts and, and you know economists the world over is is starting to talk about de development and trying to you know trying to to push back the very concept of development in order in order to not have a widespread environmental collapse. So it's it's happening at this, this debate is happening at this very, very interesting moment. And what worries me is that to a large extent, the African side of this debate seems to be siloed from the rest of the world.
0: Well, I guess my question for you is that this, I mean, so much of what you're talking about, and I don't mean any disrespect to you, it's to the ideas, is sounds like to me, just highfalutin academic think tank, ivory tower type of mishmash. Because at the end of, no, 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 and I don't mean any Uh, disrespect here, but at the end of the day, (laughs) this whole idea of deindustrializing sounds great, but when you have a population that's going to grow by 300 million people, what are these people going to do for jobs? And if it's not manufacturing, then what is it? And that's, I think, where people latch onto, and they see what's happened here in Southeast Asia, and they go, okay, this makes sense. Vietnam's a country of 94 million people. A lot of 18-year-olds are now in factories, that makes sense. Money's going back to the countryside, building houses, generating revenue for the economies and whatnot. China, that was their development path. Taiwan, Hong Kong, there are plenty of examples of this. What you're talking about isn't quite there yet. On the AI part of it, what a lot of manufacturing people will tell you is that in certain fields, it's already starting to come. But in making shoes, textiles, and low-tech type of products, it's going to be a long ways away. Irene Yuan Sun, she wrote a great book. She's at the Center for Global Development now. She wrote a book on Chinese manufacturing. This is, she talks about the companies who make flip-flops and make uh, a porcelain and things like that. They're never going to go to AI. Human fingers for a long time will still be cheaper, easier, and more malleable, and, more, and easier to abuse in many respects than, obviously, a computer or a robot. And there's going to be a demand for that for a very, very long time. But will Africa be ready for the type of grueling, grueling work that comes with manufacturing economies. That's not to say that anybody is lazy or whatnot, but it's just as I think one of the things is that when you go from an agrarian economy to a manufacturing economy, for a lot of people, that's a very dramatic culture shift. And I guess you have experience out in this side yes. of the world, Kobus, and I just wanted to ask you what is potentially a very sensitive, volatile question, And uh, but it is something I'll put on the table. Do you believe that... No, let me rephrase this. Is it possible that Confucian Asian cultures which are very hierarchical, very much top-down. There is no complaining, and there is no protesting. You do what you're told to do. That is very much how it works in this part of the world. Is better suited for manufacturing than it is some of the diversity of African cultures that don't have that same type of discipline that we see here in East Asia. Is, am I getting into weird... Space there, or is is there something mm. cultural there that makes manufacturing easier in this part of the world
1: mm, it's such a difficult question, and it's because it's so easy to kind of stumble stumble over into cultural y- yeah inter- and I, I certainly don't want to go there
0: I genuinely um, don't want to go there
1: yeah, I mean you know the so you know I think I think uh, man, kind of mass manufacturing models they 're inherently hierarchical, but they have they have managed to you know to, to jump up in lots of lots of different kinds of cultures um, and they are you know rapidly rapidly kind of establishing themselves in Africa too. so I tend to think that for me it lies a lot more in the shift from agrarian to manufacturing as as two different kind of political culture like economical cultures rather than any kind of essential kind of, you know, point that can be made about African culture versus non-African culture, especially because there's so many different African cultures involved as well. Um, That said, um, you know, the... Uh, I think, you know, so, so, you know, in, in, in discussing the uh, cultural elements do, do come in, you know. So, for example, like what, one, one of the things that, that one hears relatively frequently with, with, um, labor anthropologists who do this kind of work in the China-Africa space is, is Chinese, uh, overseers or Chinese, um, overseers is a very loaded word, um, you know, Chinese managers, um, Complaining, for example, about African uh, African workers insisting to go to church for hours on end over the weekend, for example, that's just something that's not, you know, a cultural thing that's in Africa that's not in China, that the, and those cultures just haven't developed the vocabulary to negotiate a kind of a shared space where where you know those rituals can still be practiced and the the factory runs at the same time. Um, so I think those kind of those spaces of negotiation seem to be lacking in this case, you know, kind of, and, and it seems to me that at the moment, the, you know, the, the, the natural kind of group of people who would, who would be help jumping in there into that gap and trying to, to negotiate some kind of settlement between the, the African workers and the Chinese factory owners would be the government. And they seem to be abdicating a lot of their, of their work.
0: So let me just challenge my own question that I just put forward to you. Obviously, South Africa has a very robust manufacturing sector and has done very well um, I was just watching your president today at a summit, and he was talking about 250,000 people in the automotive sector. Morocco is also building a very robust automotive uh, manufacturing sector as well. So there are some really great case studies in Africa for manufacturing economies, and I think that would be interesting for us to to kind of look at going forward as well. So, okay, that will do it for this edition of the show. Once again, a reminder to everybody, uh, we are doing a daily email newsletter that goes out. It's a subscription service. Uh, it's getting really, really good reviews. It's going out to senior government officials, going out to NGOs. Uh, we've got policymakers, think tank people on it, defense, military folks who are reading it now. Uh, some subscribers even coming from within the Chinese government are looking at it. This is the kind of thing that you are, it, you know, it's a digest of the day's top stories. It's heavy, it's thick, it's meant for practitioners in the business if you rely. On China or Africa or China, Africa and development, this is a thing that you're going to want. And if you're not getting it, you're not reading what other people are reading who are very, very influential. So we're really trying to encourage people to sign up for this. You can subscribe for it. We have student rates available. We also have, uh, you can subscribe monthly or Annually, uh, just go to our website uh, www.chinaafricaproject.com/slash-subscribe. Cobus and I are working on that every day. A subscription also gives you access to our website as well. Some of the content on the website is free, like this podcast or Student Exchange, but a lot of it is now behind a paywall. So our news feed, the experts network, our analysis that Cobus is editing. All of that is behind the paywall. You get a few pages every month. So if you go there and you're not hitting the paywall, that's just because you haven't hit it enough. But, uh, we, you know, it's all part of the subscription of what we're doing. And we really want to invite you to join this community of people who are engaged in China, Africa, news, information, analysis, networking, all of that together. So, Cobus, did I sell that hard enough? Yes, no, it sounds great. <laughs> Okay. We just, we're really excited about it. We'd love for you to sign up. So, uh, so that'll do it. For Gobus van Staden, I'm Eric Holander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gobus at Stadinski or eric at eolander and be sure to sign up for the weekly china and africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com